Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Happy New Year, everybody. And this is, believe it or not, the beginning of my eighth year hosting this podcast. Wow. So thank you so much for being here. Okay. How do I kick off the year? I thought I would do another one of those free association podcasts. I try to do two or three of these a year. And the way this works is I start out with one topic that I come up with beforehand and then just kind of riff and see where that takes me. So I have no idea what I am going to be talking about other than the uh, first thing I am going to bring up, which is uh, my tribute to Tommy Smothers. And Tommy Smothers passed away in late December, and I did a Facebook post on this that received a tremendous amount of attention, so I thought I would share it, since not everybody uh, reads my Facebook page. So here's my story about Tommy Smothers. The Smothers Brothers show premiered on CBS in like 1967. So I was a teenager in Woodland Hills, California, and I loved the show. I loved how subversive it was, and there was kind of a nutty quality to it. Um, It's no coincidence that Steve Martin was one of the writers back then. And I thought, well, boy, I would love to write for the Smothers Brothers show. Now, I had never written anything, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so this is just complete hubris on my part. But I thought, you know, I was funny, and uh, I kind of understood the tone and what they were going for, and I could do that too. So I sent off a letter offering my services as a writer on the Smothers Brothers show. Well, needless to say, a couple of weeks later, I got a rejection letter from Tommy Smothers, who was also one of the showrunners. And it was a very nice letter, and it was handwritten. Now, the star of the show, and again, he's also the showrunner, and he takes the time to write a handwritten letter to some nerd kid who is 17 who (laughs) says, I want to be a writer on your show. It's pretty unbelievable. So now you flash forward years later, and David Isaacs and I are writing, and we're up for a Writers Guild Award, which we win. And who, of all people, is our presenter? That's right, Tommy Smothers. And I reminded him of the letter, and he laughed and said, we should have hired you. But here's the other thing about Tommy Smothers. He called the house a few days before just to make sure he had the pronunciation of my name right, that he wanted to do it right. So 
there's a glimpse of just who Tommy Smothers was. And uh, he was also a great yo-yo champ. And um, we will miss him. Like I said, I love the Smothers Brothers show. One of the features that I, in particular, loved was called Tea with Goldie. And this was a sketch segment. And there was like this sort of ethereal hippie girl who would be having tea and rhapsodizing about this or that. I don't even remember what she was talking about, but I had a huge crush on Goldie. And the actress's name was Lee French. So I always had this huge crush on Lee French. And after the Smothers Brothers show, she just kind of disappeared. Uh, she may have done guest spots on some shows here or there, but kind of under my radar, certainly. And then about uh, 10, 15 years ago, I'm at a wedding at the Wilshire Ebill Theater. We'll talk about the Wilshire Ebill Theater in a moment. And sitting next to me, this very attractive woman, and introduced myself, and uh, her name was Lee French. Like, oh my God, tea with Goldie. And she, of course, was blown away that anybody even remembered that. But uh, that was so cool that I actually got a chance to spend a lot of time with Goldie, even though my wife was sitting on the other side. The Wilshire Ebel, <laughs> it's this old, probably 100-year-old giant structure on Wilshire Boulevard, and there are cavernous venues and ballrooms and things in this. It's like spooky. There's just something spooky about this. I've been to three weddings there. No two weddings in the same actual venue. Uh, hard to get to, hard to park, and you just, you feel ghosts. You know, you ever been in a room where you just sense ghosts? You know, and they're not Casper, they're not the happy ghosts. They're just these like weird, angry people from... L.A. Chinatown, I, I don't know, but the Wilshire Evil Theater. As opposed to my wedding. Here's a story about my wedding. My wife and I got married at the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Polo Lounge, which is a very famous industry restaurant in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And they also have a patio. And we got married in the summer at this patio and there were tables and in fact we had all of the guests just sitting at tables during the ceremony but it was a four o'clock sunday afternoon uh, wedding and a guest or somebody was playing tennis they also had tennis courts there and he had finished his game and he was walking back through the grounds and he comes upon this patio and this wedding. And so he's kind of curious. He just 
stands in the back and watches the ceremony. And as a result, he is in some of the pictures, kind of photobombing. And it really wasn't until a few days later when we saw the pictures that we realized that the tennis player was O.J. Simpson. So I can tell people that O.J. Simpson was actually at my wedding. My wife was blonde, gave her some lovely knives or something. Okay, I, I know. Terrible joke. People don't think of O.J. Simpson, well, they don't think of O.J. Simpson <laughs> much other than a murderer, but uh, they don't think of him as a great football player, which he was, he was a Hall of Fame football player. They tend to think of him more as an actor because he was in some movies that are still being seen today, notably the Naked Gun movies, which were really fun. Back then, I haven't seen uh, Naked Gun in a long time. I don't know if necessarily it holds up. But I do know this, that at the time, those movies, and they were basically uh, penned and directed by the guys who did Airplane, which was really the first, the kind of movie that was just crazy, a joke a second, anything for a laugh. Uh, Jerry Zucker and David Zucker and um, Jim Abrams. Uh, those were the three people behind all of those movies. And they also did Naked Gun. And, you know, when I think of Naked Gun and, and I think of being in a theater with a full house and everybody is laughing, I mean, there is just the ringing of laughter throughout this large cineplex. And I stopped and wondered, when was the last time that I had been in a situation like that. And I go back and I'm thinking, Bridesmaids, maybe? Remember Superbad, uh, Knocked Up, uh, Something About Mary. These movies are way, way back in time now. (laughs) I'm thinking, I haven't seen a movie that really made me laugh in years. Have you? What was the last movie that you went to that you really laughed? I've had that experience a couple of times in the theater. I mentioned this a number of episodes ago when I talked about the play that goes wrong. Uh, When I saw that originally, it was hilarious and it was really fun just that shared experience of everybody laughing it's why i write plays because for me the high is being in a theater hearing that laughter and it's just out of fashion i guess you know i talked to my partner david who is now the 
chairman of the department of the TV writing division of uh, the University of Southern California. Uh, one of us is gainfully employed, at least. And and I asked him, do the kids want to write comedy? And he goes, nah, they all want to write Fleabag. They all want to write dark comedy or just kind of mean-spirited comedy. And, boy, I miss that. You know, there is something very joyful about being in a theater with two or three hundred other people and you're all laughing. So, all right, I'll get off of that uh, soapbox. Let's see, O.J. Simpson. Oh, uh, Leslie Nielsen was the star of those Naked Gun movies and Airplane. Very funny actor. And I remember this was probably the mid-'80s. He was in a short-lived series called Shaping Up. It was for ABC. It was created by Sam Simon, they might sound familiar to you because you see it every week on The Simpsons. He's one of the creators, and he was really the the voice of The Simpsons in the early years. Uh, so Sam Simon and his then-partner Ken Esten, who was intricately involved in the Tracy Ullman show. In fact, it was Ken Esten who, when they were looking for bumpers – something different between sketches and the Tracy Ullman show. It was Ken Esten who had read Matt Groening's uh, comics in the LA Weekly and said, why don't we go to this guy to do something? And The Simpsons actually began as these little 15-second animated bumpers between scenes in the Tracy Ullman show, and none of that would have happened without Ken Esten. Okay, so the two of them have this series that stars Leslie Nielsen and the other actor who they loved was a guy named Tim Robbins. The network hated him. The network would not go for Tim Robbins. And they ended up getting a locks. This guy was just terrible. And the show lasted like 13 weeks and was gone. I also think Jennifer Tilly was in that show as well. The writing was good. Sam and Ken are really good writers, but... And you're thinking to yourself, like, really? How could you not look at Tim Robbins? The guy ends up winning an Oscar. How can you not see that this was a wonderful actor? I had a friend who went to UCLA with... Tim Robbins, and they took acting classes together, and he said, there's just no, there's no question, even back then, that this guy was just a star. This guy was so much better than the rest of us, and yet the network couldn't <laughs> and, and didn't approve him. And this is not an unusual case. We had this ourselves. David and I had a pilot for Fox in the early aughts. It all blends together, 2003 or four or whatever. And we had an actor, and it wasn't even the starring role. It was a supporting part, but it was a key part. 
And we had seen lots and lots of actors. And this one guy came in and we thought like, wow, there is something really special about this guy. And we brought him to the network. And the network president goes, nah, I don't get it. And we go, what? He says, bring me other people. We went back, we looked, we saw some other people. We said, this is our guy. We brought him back in. And the network president went, yeah, uh, no. And we thought, we said, we have to have him. There is nobody else. We have to have this guy. And finally, reluctantly, they said, okay, fine, whatever. Zarin Paul. <laughs> now, you see him on Breaking Bad and you go, oh, my God, there's something special about this guy. How could anybody not see that? From what I understand in the original pilot, he was supposed to be killed. And they watched dailies like the first day or two. And Vince Gilligan said, like, we, we are lightning in a bottle. We can't kill this guy. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, but that is the network hurdle that all actors and uh, producers, for that matter, have to, to go with. Uh, another time when we were doing Big Wave Dave's, the show that I mentioned frequently and have posted a few episodes on YouTube if you want to see it, uh, but we wanted to cast David Morse in a part. And David Morse, primarily known for drama, and he was on St. Elsewhere for a long time. You've seen him. He plays the heavy most of the time in things. Wonderful, wonderful actor. And he was very funny in this part. And it was different and fresh. And we take it to CBS. And he does a really good reading. And everybody's laughing. And when he leaves, the president of CBS goes... God, I don't know. He's just known for drama and everything. And, and God bless, Tim Flack was his name. He was the director of comedy for CBS. And God bless him. So he stood up and he said, I don't understand. We all laughed, didn't we? He was funny, wasn't he? What, what are we talking about here? And so they were able to approve David Morse, who was very funny in the show. Like I said, go to YouTube and you can see. It's always fun to cast against type. My favorite, I would say, would be uh, Margot Martindale, who played a heavy in the second season of Justified. By far the best season of Justified was the second one because of... Margot Martindale. And for years, she always played just a sweet Aunt B type, kind of dumpy. And like I said, always very sweet. Well, she was sinister and it was so much fun. I love Justified, by the way. And I don't know about you, but I was very excited when I heard that they were going to make new episodes and I was raring to go, and then I hated it. The whole show, which took place in Detroit, it was just another dark cop show. It's like all of the charm, all of the humor, all of the flair of the original was totally gone. 
And there were no great Raylan moments. If you're familiar with the show, you know what I'm talking about, where there would always be in every episode one or two really interesting showdowns, uh, whether it resulted in violence or not. Uh, There was still like really juicy, great actor scenes. It's really fun. None of that in the new version. And part of that is because they didn't have the original writers and the other characters weren't that good. Um, Like I said, I love Justified, but Justified is a show, if I'm being honest, that I couldn't write. I loved it, but I don't know those people, those Kentucky crackers. And there was a very definite style. There was uh, a certain eloquent style of speech that was somewhat bizarre, but for whatever reason worked with hillbillies like Boyd Crowder being incredibly articulate. And they even had a scene with Michael Malley and Boyd Crowder. Michael Malley at one point says, Jesus, you say 40 words when only four would suffice. So they knew what they were doing. It was very colorful and it was fun, but it's not something that I felt I could write. It was certainly not in my wheelhouse. And, of course, it begs the question people have always asked me since I always write comedy. They, can you write drama? And I'm like, well, yeah. There was certainly a lot of drama in MASH, which I wrote. So, yes. But then they'd ask me, well, okay, what dramatic shows out there do you feel that you could or would have been able to write? And I would say Mad Men. I was kind of tuned into Mad Men. Good Wife was another show. I loved all of the characters and all of the shadings in Good Life, uh, Good Wife. And, uh, and then 24. I have no idea whether I would write a decent episode of 24. I have no idea. I've never written anything like that. Uh, I've done some action. Uh, David and I did a rewrite on the Romancing the Stone sequel, Jewel of the Nile, and so there were action sequences. But it wasn't just with a ticking clock and constantly having to propel the story forward. But it's something that I would have liked to have tried. (laughs) There were elements of that show that I always found almost kind of laughable and, and things that I would kind of want to write, like like the Chloe scenes when she was back at CTU or whatever the organization was that they all worked. And um, she was like always on the headset talking to Jack, who was always diffusing bombs or whatever. And she would constantly be reminding Jack of the things that he – already knows. But she's doing it, obviously, for the sake of the audience. So she just like would repeat, 
Well, Jack, uh, if you don't find the tripwire, it's going to blow the city up and you only have five minutes. And I would love to then have Jack go, you don't think I know? You you have to tell me that? Well, okay, really, because I need to take a lunch break, but I guess I won't now that I know that if I don't find the tripwire, I'll blow up the city. I would just love to write that scene. The other thing I will say about 24 is that if you live in L.A. or if you are familiar with L.A., that show was a hoot. It was so absurd. He would go from downtown where their headquarters were to Valencia at three o'clock in the afternoon and he would get there in 15 minutes. If you had a helicopter, you couldn't get from downtown to Valencia in 15 minutes. And they would do that all the time on the show. I remember there was one episode where he drives up to Santa Barbara. Now, it takes, without traffic, two hours to get to Santa Barbara, but obviously they don't want to lose Jack for two hours, so he makes it in like 45 minutes. Like, wow, so you have a jetpack? But again, those are things that if you're living in Knoxville, it totally works. You have, you have no idea. But I did find the show very entertaining. And now I think about it, that show and The Good Wife were the last network dramas that I watched. Wow. Again, how long has 24 been off the air? How long has The Good Wife been off the air? Four years, five years? I haven't watched a network drama. I mean, I have no interest in NCIS Pittsburgh or Chicago Ambulance, Chicago Police, Chicago Coast Guard. I have no interest in watching any of those shows. And it's very weird how I'll look in the trade papers and they'll say, NBC has canceled a particular show after three years. And I've never heard of the show. This is the first I've ever heard of it. <laughs> it's like, how is that possible for somebody who has been in the industry to not know a show that's on the National Broadcasting Company for three seasons, and I don't know it. It's uh, the state of the industry today. And the fact that nobody really watches anymore, nobody really cares. And in terms of dramas now, the networks all are looking for franchises. So if you have a franchise, Chicago whatever, or NCIS whatever, or CSI whatever, uh, FBI whatever, um, then you make four hours of them. Law and Order, Law and Order, SVU, Law and Order, SUV. It's, it's all 
franchise. And so there's a reason why people are bouncing around going to Amazon Prime and Netflix and Hulu and wherever to to find shows. When was the last time you were with people and you're talking about television and, you know, people start saying, so what are you watching? Watching anything interesting? You know, come up with shows and <laughs> now my comment is always, okay, what platform is that on? You know, and, and half the time they don't even know. I think it's on Max. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really remember. But nobody is talking about anything that's on one of the broadcast networks. And nobody's saying, oh, man, have you seen 911? <laughs> oh, man, The Good Doctor. You got to watch The Good Doctor. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before the broadcast networks go away. And on that happy note, uh, as I've just about hit 30 minutes, I think that's going to do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine Free Association Podcast. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller, and Howard Hoffman. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That's Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I am also available on Instagram if you want to see my cartoons, Hollywood and Levine. And we have some good interviews and some very interesting shows coming up this year. Again, we begin the eighth year of this podcast. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week right here on. Hollywood and the Vine.